Are you ready? Ready. Let's do it. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. Now here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. And this season, we're focusing specifically on psychological safety, what we can do to build it in our organizations and why it's important to change. So let's jump right in. Toby, how do you define psychological safety? Well, for me, I I think it really comes down to, are we living in and working in trusted atmosphere? So do I feel the, and and have authentically the support if we're talking in the work environment of, you know, my supervisor, my, my teammates, are we working in a, in an environment where I'm even, I'm trusted to fail and it's okay. And I can move forward. That, that I think is right. Psychologically safe for me is if I know, Hey, I'm with a team that's going to support me no matter what. Yeah. And we at the change artist are big proponents of failure. So I love that. Now, for those of you who don't know him, Dr. Toby Travis is an executive consultant with the Global School Consulting Group, an adjunct professor for the State University of New York College of Buffalo, and an experienced teacher and school administrator. He is also the founder of TrustEd, a framework for business, organization, and school improvement focusing on developing trusted leaders. And so I want to come back and dig in a little bit on, on your definition of psychological safety and key in on authentic support. What does authentic support mean? And maybe what doesn't it mean? Well, first of all, I would say consistency of practice with beliefs and values. A lot of my work is helping organizations assess the trust level of their leaders, then uh, you know, address practical methods to, to remedy any weaknesses in that trust level. And But the primary, well, if not primary, certainly one of the major areas where I see trust breaking apart is where organizations or their leaders will be espousing one thing. They'll say, these are our values. This is what we believe. But then when you actually look at their practice and what's going on in either from managerial practice to organizational policies, uh, HR practices, it doesn't support what they say they believe. So when we talk about what does it look to be authentic, it means we are who we say we are. We do what we say we do. Uh, One of the services that I will often do with my clients is they'll send me like their, their HR manual or their, in the school clients, they'll send me their school handbook. And what I'm looking for is I'm scanning through to identify, are there any policies or procedures that are grounded in the assumption of distrust? Because what you find is often organizations create policies because somebody blew it in the past, right? So someone messed up. And so the way the organizational leadership addressed that was, we need to create a policy to fix this. Well, policy doesn't fix everything. And if you've got policies now that are in place that penalize the many for the sins of the few, this creates potentially a toxic environment. So we hire well, we support well, we trust people to be professionals. And if they're not the right people, then as Jim Collins says, we get them off the bus. But when we have those atmospheres of high levels of trust, Oh, it's like a magic recipe. It's like all kinds of good things start happening. You see greater levels of innovation. You see higher levels of contribution of discretionary energy and time. Those are those are the indicators of authentic levels of, of trust. 
What are some examples of some of those written policies grounded in the foundation of distrust? Because if I think about corporate policies documentation, and it's sort of, it feels table stakes. I see it. I see a lot of the same stuff everywhere. And so this idea of looking at the underlying motivation of those policies and using that as an indicator of level of trust from the top down, what are some of those examples? Well, so it, it's going to vary from industry sector to industry sector. Um, but for example, I think of a, a private school client that I was working with, and they were actually making their teachers log their hours. You know, they literally were clocking like factory workers. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, this is so unhealthy. Uh, you either trust them to be professionals, to be there on time. Now, you know, if the expectation is, no, you've got to be in your classroom and at the door, uh, you know, 10 minutes before class starts in order to greet kids as they're coming in and a teacher's not doing that. Okay, yes. But to make them actually punch an hour card, no, you know, in, in, in education, you know, teachers are always putting in additional hours above and beyond what would be the standard eight-hour workday. It's just the norm of, of what we do. And we shouldn't take advantage of that, but we also shouldn't uh, be penalizing them. Reports. So look at uh, what, what are the reports that are required and why are they required? In the virtual world, so a, a lot of you know workers have now gone to uh, you know working from home uh, via Zoom, and now there's all this new technology and ways to check and make sure they're actually online and working. Really, really unhealthy. If you don't trust them to do the work, you've hired the wrong person. And so those would be examples of the kinds of policies that might be in place that are there for accountability. Well, if you've, if you've got to create processes and systems to ensure accountability, again, I go back, you've hired the wrong person. And it feels like they're processes and systems that drive accountability, not to the goals of the organization, but to some sort of tactical administrative objective, right? The difference between a people leader and a people administrator. And that's where, again, it, it can become really toxic if an individual feels like, oh, the levels of bureaucracy here. You know, think about uh, purchase orders. That's another example. What, what does it take for me to get supplies ordered for my area of responsibility? You know, and if I've got to jump through, you know, three forms and five signatures uh, and then hopefully, you know, get a credit card released to me or something or however the process works, that can be really demoralizing. No, we've got to have accountability systems. I understand that. But there have to be efficient ways that we are running to support those whom we manage and figuring out how to solve their problems really fast, not making them jump through 10 different hoops to get a, you know, a resupply of you know, whatever their need is. And how do you think about trust, one-on-one -on -one trust, trust between individuals, as opposed to trust with the organization, because I, you know, you'll hear people say, I love my boss, but the company is kind of a disaster, or I'm really committed to the company, but my relationship with my boss is terrible, right? How do you think about trust in those two different, maybe even it's about scaling trust, right? Trust at the individual and one-on-one -on -one level versus trust at the organizational level. Actually, I would argue that that's a, maybe a false understanding of how trust works. Trust is all relational. It's all relational. So if you drill down and say, well, why do you trust the company? Really what they're going to talk to you about are people. 
They're going to talk about, you know, so maybe, yeah, their immediate supervisor they don't trust, but boy, they love their CEO or their, or their you know, the whoever the, the head of the company may be. Uh, it's all relational. It's all about relationships. So, you know, when you look at, okay, how do we fix this? How do we restore it? It always comes down to how are we interacting with each other? And as I'm sure you're probably aware, I mean, the number one reason people leave employment is because they don't feel supported by their direct supervisor. I mean, that is the key relationship. And so let's then, I want to rewind all the way back to trusting your people to fail. Talk a little bit about trusting your people to fail and how that plays into psychological safety, how that plays into a productive and innovative workplace. Well, we've actually seen multiple studies on this, especially in relationship to innovation, where we see the highest levels of innovation. In, and again, it doesn't matter the sector, whether we're talking corporate, business, manufacturing, or education, the highest levels of innovation are found in the most trusted environments. So when I know, oh, my boss or my board, in my case, no, they're, they've empowered me to go and figure out how to do this the best that we can. And I'm transparent about it. And, you know, and we put a team together, we give it our best effort and, oh, that didn't work. And it's chalked up then as a lesson towards improvement rather than a censure of, oh, incompetency. And there is a fine line, right? You have to make sure you've got the right people in place that are working on whatever it is that we're working on. So there is an element of if you're seeing someone is not delivering, that also has to be recognized. But if you're confident, no, this is the right person. They've got the skill sets and competencies to be successful in this. Let them go. Let them fly. And, And when they blow it, yeah, okay, what can we learn through this? How do we regroup? What do we take from this and always learn? One of my philosophies of education is we learn through failure. It is one of the greatest teachers of life. And if we don't, then then there's something else that's broken and that needs to be addressed. Learning from failure requires some kind of feedback mechanism. Talk to me a little bit about the role of candor in trust. Well, I would maybe, maybe could we define that as transparency? That's an interesting parallel to draw, right? Because I think when we think about candid feedback, I don't think we equate candor and transparency in our minds. And so if you do, like, help me understand how these things are, how we should think about these things as synonyms. As leaders, we've got to have the ability and understand the importance of being able to both look in the mirror, so being self-reflective, and also allowing others to provide us input and reflection. This is why I'm such a believer in, let's use the data to inform our trust levels. And, And what that usually involves and must involve, I would argue in an organizational sense, is leaders must allow those whom they supervise to provide direct feedback. And it has to be confidential, but it has to be, again, open to transparency. We use a a 360 assessment in the trust ed work. The first step is for candor. Okay, so let's go back to your question. As a leader, I've got to be willing to hear it all. And actually, what we've discovered is that's a huge step right there in developing trust with those whom you, you lead or supervise. Just the ability and the willingness to say, yeah, I'm open for others to reflect on my practice as a leader builds trust. If I'm not open to that, 
most likely what you're seeing are levels of insecurity and really not a healthy understanding of how leadership really works. Um, so I would start with, yep, I've got to be honest about my own practice. I've got to let others speak into my life and my practice. And, and the others I'm talking about are those whom I'm leading. Because when we talk about trust levels, perception is reality, right? So I may not like it. I may not like what I'm hearing from those I lead, but that is reality. If they, if they don't trust me at some level, if there's something they don't have confidence in me about in my, in my leadership practice and what I deliver as a leader, that's reality. And I've got to deal with it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I had a conversation just recently on, you know, how do we deliver feedback? How do we accept feedback? And when we feel defensive and about feedback, we receive feedback, we feel defensive about what we've heard, and we go to justifying and almost trying to convince our feedback provider that they're wrong. We haven't heard. We're not growing. And so figuring out how to come out of intention, you can share what your intentions were, but acknowledging and accepting outcomes and understanding that you need to change outcomes and so you need to change behavior to get those new outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, do you tweak your, your approach to trust on the basis of personality types and thinking like Myers-Briggs personality types, you know, do you see any, any modulation required as you're working with members of your team that maybe come with different personalities? Yes and, and no. So what we've what's been born out of the research is we know there are six components to trusted leadership. And there are very specific skill sets and competencies attached to each of those components. And when they are in place, and this is why, you know, one of the misnomers about trusted leadership is that it's just a soft skill, you know, in the sense of either you have it or you don't. And actually, nothing could be further from the truth. And what we find is the most trusted leaders are very intentional in developing uh, those practices that lead to high levels of trust. Uh, they're, they're assessing it, they're monitoring it, they're developing it in themselves and in others. And this holds true, again, almost regardless of, of industry or sector or organization uh, that we're talking about. Now, what is probably critical to what you're, you're speaking to there as far as personality types and, and strengths is that foundational realization that our leadership is all about a team. It's not about an individual, right? So this is why, again, it's really important to assess our team, our team skills and make up, for example, in, in school leadership, we've identified actually 21 specific practices that must be in place. But what we also identify is no single educational leader can have high levels of competency in all 21. It's just not possible. So what is important is to evaluate, okay, my leadership team who amongst us has these skills? Where are we weak? In fact, that's, that's great to create a profile of who do we need to add to the team? You know, we identify, ooh, we're really lacking in this skill set or this ability. Mm, let's, let's intentionally look for someone to add or promote to the team that can bring those skill sets. So that modification really comes into, to me, to team development. Who do we have that fulfills all the, I mean, you might have someone on the team who's a great communicator. Uh, in my analogy of the bridge in the book, it, this is the deck of the bridge. This is a person who can communicate well. Uh, usually they are people of, of order and clarity, but they may suffer on relationship building. 
right? And uh, so they might be great spokesmen. They might be great and articulate. They might be great at, at casting vision and keeping us focused on vision, but in creating highly trusted culture and relationships in the organization, they may lack on some of those skills. So this is also an area they need support. And we need to add somebody on the team who's also has those abilities. I think that's really fascinating, this idea that you would take your leadership team, take your trust competencies or your trust behaviors and divide and conquer to make sure that you've covered them all for your organization. I think that's really fascinating. Have you seen anybody do this really well? Oh, sure. You know, and, and I'm a big fan of Jim Collins and his work with Good to Great. You know, he talks about this all the time. You know, his level five leader is mission driven and humble. You know, it's those two indicators. It's like, no, they're passionate about the mission. And they also understand it's not about them. That recipe for success, and, and he articulates numerous examples uh, in his book where we see that happening. And we've seen so many stories of, you know, where, you know, that, that charismatic leader came in and it was really exciting for a short time. And then when they're gone or when it fizzles, it all dies, right? So no, the healthiest of Fortune 500 companies, you look, what is it makes them really rock is, no, they've got great teams and they know how to work as a team. And we're back to your original comment, this idea of they're all in that psychologically safe place. They've, they've got each other's backs. They're, they're all sharing the same values. They have shared values. You know, this is a really important element when we talk about HR and, and how do we develop um, high levels of trust from day one? Well, you got to make sure we're hiring people that share our organizational values and that we're real about our values. Um, because when you have shared core values, that is the path for solving all kinds of challenges in the workplace is, okay, let's go back to our core values. What, what do we hear? How do we agree to do life together? And then make sure you know, we're all bought into the same mission. We're all going in the same direction. We're not fighting for different things. Really, really critical for organizational success. What role does interpersonal friendship play in the workplace to building professional trust? Is it required? Is it necessary? Or does professional and organizational trust, can that, can that sit separate from interpersonal friendship? That's a really great question because I've seen organizations where that seems to be working well. Uh, and I've seen others where it's muddied the waters and, and really created complex problems and issues. And, you know, listen, I'm not familiar. I'm, I'm, again, I'm a bit of a data hound. I'm not familiar with a re research in that area. That would be a really fascinating uh, area to, to explore because I know as a leader, I have maintained uh, professional relationships with my direct reports and, and others within the organization, um, but they are most likely not in the center of my life. And that's because, you know, as a leader, you know, there may come a day you've, you've got to fire them or, you know, or you've got to, you know, intervene in some way. And so we can be, we can be professional friends that are in play golf and, you know, you know, but my life center is in my home with my wife and my kids, you know, it, that's, that's going to be the core of, of, of my life and, and probably not the folks that I work with. But I do know there are, there are individuals who, yeah, they build very strong 
personal relationships with those they work with. But it, it can, again, I, I see that it can also be problematic. There is research that says if you're more vulnerable at work, people are willing to open up to you, people are more willing to trust you. But not everybody is comfortable opening this huge aperture into their personal lives for the people that they work with. And oftentimes those people get feedback that is people don't trust you because they don't feel like they know you. How do people know you if you're not sharing and you're not opening, you're not opening up in that way? And is this perhaps a misunderstanding of the nature of trust? There's something called situational awareness that's uh, been often a topic of research of, of leaders, and, and it goes two directions. It's this idea that I am aware of the situational needs of my employees, but it's also there is a level of building trust when I am as transparent as I can be uh, about you know my own life and concerns and joys and passions and disappointments. You know, we, we find, again, back in the education sector, I'll use an example, when a teacher can actually share with their students uh, that they blew it, they made a mistake. What we actually find is it creates a higher level of engagement of the kids in the learning. But a teacher actually saying to the kids, you know what, I made a mistake last week. I graded that wrong. Or, oops, I forgot to tell you this. I, I, I own that. I'm sorry, kids. I apologize. Boom. Now there's a stronger, deeper connection between those kids and the teacher. Same thing in leadership. When I'm transparent with my team, I say, you know what, gang, I blew it. I forgot to give you, you know, that you needed this other piece of data to make this decision. That's on me. I, I, and I will own it with the board. That kind of transparency will build you know, higher levels of trust. And Alyssa, I, I want to make a comment because you, you've referenced feedback a couple of times. And there's a, there is a problem, though, that I've seen in the desire for feedback. And yes, we must have feedback. There's, there should be a feedback loop to everything that we're working on. However, a, a tactical error that a lot of organizations have made is they, they may or may not understand that there is actually a science to this as well. You know, the, with the popularity of Google surveys and SurveyMonkey and these tools that are out there, uh, a lot of folks feel like, oh, well, I can just throw a survey together and get feedback. It doesn't, it's not that simple. Um, and especially when we're talking about the complexities of feedback on leadership. Again, we know from the research, there are very specific indicators that we've got to get responses on. There are very specific ways to ask the question to get the kind of response you're looking for. And if we're not asking the right questions about the right content or the right skill sets or competencies or practices, we're actually not going to get the data to inform us about our leadership that we're hoping to get. And so this way, and, and I, I, I do not own these companies, uh, but I am a great supporter and encourager of, no, use the professionals who know how to do this and they will get you the information. You know, have I helped create some of those assessments? Yes. So I am a bit biased in that, but I've also seen organizations go off the rails because they've thought, well, we've got data. We, we put out all these surveys to the team and this is what they told us. Yeah, but you weren't asking the right questions and you weren't interpreting the response the way it was intended. Talk to the professionals, get the professionals to help you do this, get the data you need, and then make decisions to inform the development or the initiative of the organization based on good data. But that in itself is, is hard work. And, and so just a word of caution. Absolutely. Okay. So when it comes to assessing, when it comes to collecting that feedback, 
use people who know what they're doing. I know we're coming up to the end of our time together, but before we go, what is one thing that listeners can do to move the needle on psychological safety in their own teams and their own organizations? Something they can do starting today. Use email for information, not issues. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I came into an organization years ago and there was a culture of people just blasting each other via email messages or text messages. And as I ended up in leadership in that organization, one of the very first things I asked the team to do is, hey, let's pull out our grievance policy and talk about how we deal with problems. And we talked a lot about what are our, our, our norms in our organization? How do, what are our norms of how we're going to do life together? And one of the norms we created was you may not submit a problem or an issue or a disagreement via email or text. Now, you can document it, but you must engage face-to-face. And if I, and I've continued that practice for years now. So now, you know, if I get an angry gram uh, from someone, the only response I will provide, and I instruct my team, the only response they may provide is, thank you for sharing your concern. Please set an appointment for us to talk. I will not engage in the problem or the argument or the disagreement or the frustration. I will acknowledge it, but I will not engage in it. And that practice alone, what I saw in in my first experience with this, and I've seen it throughout in in many other environments now and and organizations that I've consulted, they're like, Toby, that like changed the whole work environment. Because people, for some reason, don't behave with their fingers. They're they're, they're typing things they would never say come out of their lips. And so just that, that type of practice alone can change your work culture and just make everybody behave and also value relationship. Let's value each other as people. Let's talk to each other as people. And uh, so there you go. There's a, a practical protocol that can actually increase levels of trust. I love that. I love that. So use email for information, not for issue resolution. Well, thank you, Toby. I know I've learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Now, if our listeners want to connect with you directly or if they want to dive deeper into what those behaviors are that lead to a high level of trust, how should they go about doing that? Well, um, you can always reach out to me on uh, trustedconsulting.org and just those two words put together. You can find me on LinkedIn, Dr. Toby Travis, uh, the book, Trust Ed is available on Amazon. Uh, it's called Trust Ed, The Bridge to School Improvement. And although it, it is written for the education sector, the applications uh, are really universal to almost any organization. Uh, so yeah, uh, the books on Amazon, you can find me on LinkedIn or on the website and happy to help in any way that I can. Perfect. And we will be sure to post those links in the show notes for any who want to follow those. I really appreciate your time and perspective here. Hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to their own teams. If any of our listeners would like to bring these kinds of conversations to their own organizations, they can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com to schedule an intro call. Thank you again, Toby. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you.